So, before we get there, we want to go uh, back to the book of Acts, and we're almost done. So, it's saying something. Say, we've read the whole book of Acts this summer up until chapter 23. We're in the middle of chapter 23 right now, and we're going to finish it out here in the next couple weeks. Uh, I'm so glad we've gone on this journey through Acts. We started it, if you remember, with a question in our hearts, which was, Holy Spirit, what do you want to do within us? We sense God's power. We know that God is able to do great things. We know our world desperately needs God's power. And, and really, the, the, our community and even our own family is like, we need to engage with God's power and God's love. And so we say, well, Lord, what, how do you, you want to do that? How, how would you use us to accomplish your purposes? So he gives us the Holy Spirit to empower our testimony, to give us confidence to walk forward, he gives us the Holy Spirit to gift us and teach us so that we're able to move, move in His direction. Say, okay, Lord, you did that in the first century with this first group of Christian believers, which is what the book of Acts is all about. How do you want that to work now in our century? What are we supposed to be doing? So we've been looking through Acts, looking for how the Holy Spirit works through people who say yes to Him. And if you're one of those people, this book's really personal, even though it's a history book. It's also a book that shows us the path forward in our own time. Okay, so before we open and start reading from chapter 23 going forward, I want to ask you a question about the idea of confidence. What gives a person confidence? I just think about that for a moment. In what, time, what moments do you feel most confident? Or when do you feel a lack of confidence? All right, turn to your neighbor and ask them, hey, when do you feel confident? Okay, I'll give you 30 seconds to know your neighbor. Go for it. Okay, so I, I was thinking about a couple different categories when I think any of us would feel increasing confidence. So one would be if, if you know you, it, it kind of depends on who's with you, right? So imagine that you're in a, uh, let's say you're in, in, a, in a hostile country somewhere, and it's, it's one o'clock in the morning, and you're walking down the streets, you don't speak the language, you don't know the culture, and you see a group of what looks like to be some sort of thugs coming towards you. In that moment, how confident do you feel? Pretty deflated, right? Now, I want you to just take that same mental image and say, wait, I forgot to mention, you are surrounded by a group of Navy SEALs who are walking with you. How do you feel now? Potentially a little bit better about that situation, right? Um, the confidence that you have depends on who's surrounding you, who's with you. Uh, another Thing that I think brings confidence is if we have resources. Okay, so if you face some sort of crisis, like you all of a sudden realize that there's this loud thumping noise in the back of your car and you're like, oh no, my tire is flat. And so you veer off to the side of the road. In that moment, as you're finally, you know, get into the little safe zone on the side of the lane and you're thinking, oh, now what do I do? If you have, you know, AAA and uh, whatever, a hundred bucks in your bank account, 
and, and a little bit of extra time or whatever, you, you might not be happy with that situation, but you're feeling pretty confident that you'll be back on your way before you know it. It'll, it'll kind of work out, right? But what if you don't have AAA, you don't have $100, and you don't have any time, and your tire goes flat? Well, now all of a sudden, you feel like, wow, I don't, I'm feeling a little lack of confidence that things are going to go well here because I don't have the resources to get this to where it needs to go. The other category would be in the things we know. So you've got, you've got who you're with, what resources you have, and also who you know, or, I mean, or also what you know. So if you're very confident you have the skills to face a challenge, probably not a big deal. But if you don't think you know how to do something and you have to face that, suddenly you feel like I don't have a lot of faith in myself in this situation. So as we read the book of Acts, have you noticed that the disciples, the apostles of Jesus, the various main characters, do you notice that they have quite a bit of confidence in the things they're doing? I mean, they're in life and death situations, they're under threat, uh, they're traveling in foreign places, and yet it seems like at every stop we're reading stories of them having great confidence even in moments when most people would be full of fear. So what do you think gave them that confidence? It would have something to do with who they're with, the resources they have access to, and what they know. I believe those first century believers knew they were with the Holy Spirit, like they knew God was with them. They knew that the power of God was their resource. They'd seen miracles, right? So they, were, they weren't questioning like, well, what if God doesn't help? They, they knew he was there. They knew he could help. They also knew that he would empower even their words even in tough circumstances, to be able to speak the truth. So they could walk forward, not with arrogance, not with misplaced confidence, but certainly with faith, right? So Acts 23, we're going to read, and as we've been doing each Sunday here, kind of extended reading. So if you want to take the Bible out of the bottom of the seat in front of you and read along with us, it's page 671, Acts chapter 23, verse 12. In setting here, what we learned last week was that Paul had been arrested. He had been put on trial among the Jewish religious leaders, and they, they wanted him gone. I mean, they were so done with the growth of the Christian movement. It was messing up their power structure. It was ruining their status quo. They wanted Paul out, and, and yet God was with him. And so here they, they keep trying, and it's just attempt after attempt on Paul's life. And they're just not able to kill him. So more and more frustration about that. They finally have him in custody. But then do you remember what happened last week? Just when they thought they had him, the Roman commander showed up and took Paul to the fortress, which, man, now we can't kill him because the Romans have him. Okay, so that's where we find ourselves in this story. Chapter 23, verse 12. The next morning, a group of Jews got together and bound themselves with an oath not to eat or drink anything until they had killed Paul. So how long do you think you can survive without eating or drinking anything? Eating anything, you might be able to survive a while, but if you don't drink anything, what do you think you have? Medical people, what would we have? Three, four days maybe, and you're pretty much down for the count? Okay, so, you know, they're pretty serious. Like, they are going to get him, and we're not messing around. It's either us or him. Okay. There were more than 40 of them in this conspiracy, they went to the leading priests and elders and told them, we have bound ourselves with an oath to eat nothing until we have killed Paul. So 
you and the high council should ask the commander to bring Paul back to the council again, pretend you want to examine his case more fully, then we will kill him on the way. Now that, it just shows you how like hopelessly corrupt things were in Jerusalem at this moment. Because think about the, 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 the chief priests and the elders, that's the religious leaders of the people. That would be like you coming to the church and saying, I really want to meet with the pastors, the elders, the deacons. You get everybody in the room, the whole church leadership, and you say, I've got this plan. I really want to kill somebody, but I need you guys to lie to help me do it. And we all go, sure, we're in. But that's how bad things were, okay? So they make this plan, but Paul's nephew, verse 16, his sister's son heard of their plan and went to the fortress and told Paul. Paul called for the Roman officer and said, take this young man to the commander. He has something important to tell him. So the officer did, explaining Paul the prisoner called me over and asked you to bring, asked me to bring this young man to you because he has something to tell you. The commander took his hand, led him aside, and asked, well, what is it you want to tell me? Paul's nephew told him, some Jews are going to ask you to bring Paul before the high council tomorrow, pretending they want to get more information. But don't do it. There are more than 40 men hiding along the way, ready to ambush him. They have vowed not to eat or drink anything until they've killed him. They are ready now, just waiting for your consent. Don't let anyone know you told me this, the commander warned the young man. Then the commander called two of his officers and ordered to get 200 soldiers ready to leave for Caesarea at 9 o'clock tonight. Also take 200 spearmen and 70 mounted troops. So Paul did get a detachment of Navy SEALs to travel with him on this road. So he, he didn't have to worry a whole lot about the conspiracy. 40 starving guys over here or my big garrison of 200 trained Roman soldiers, he's got pretty good chances. Provide horses for Paul, verse 24, to ride and get him safely to Governor Felix. Then he wrote this letter to the governor, from Claudius Lysias to His Excellency, Governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by some Jews. They were about to kill him when I arrived with the troops. When I learned that he was a Roman citizen, I removed him to safety. Then I took him to their high council to try to learn the basis of the accusations against him. I soon discovered this charge was regarding something of their religious law, certainly nothing worthy of imprisonment or death, but I was informed of a plot to kill him. I immediately sent him on to you. I have his accusers, I have told his accusers to bring their charges before you. So that night, as ordered, the soldiers took Paul as far as Antipatris. They returned to the fortress the next morning while the mounted troops took him on to Caesarea. When they arrived in Caesarea, they presented Paul and the letter to Governor Felix. He read it and asked Paul what province he was from. Sicilia, Paul answered. I will hear your case myself when your accusers arrive, the governor told him. Then the governor ordered him kept in prison at Herod's headquarters. Five days later, Ananias, the high priest, arrived with some of the Jewish elders and the lawyer, Tertullus, to present their case to Paul, or the, the case against Paul, to the governor. When Paul was called in, Tertullus presented the charges against Paul in the following address to the governor. You have provided a long period of peace for us Jews and have had the foresight of, and have enacted reforms for us. For all of this, Your Excellency, we are very grateful to you. But I don't want to bore you, so please give me your attention for only a moment. We have found this man to be a troublemaker who is constantly stirring up riots among Jews all over the world. Now that part was half true, right? Everywhere Paul went, there was a riot. But who was stirring up the riots? Genuinely, it wasn't Paul. It was actually usually the Jews in that situation who were reacting against his message, stirring up riots. 
uh, but we move past that. It says he is the ringleader of the cult known as the Nazarenes. Furthermore, he was trying to desecrate the temple when we arrested him. You can find out the truth of our accusations by examining him yourself. Then the other Jews chimed in, declaring that everything Tertullus had said was true. The governor then motioned for Paul to speak. And Paul said, I know, sir, that you have been a judge of Jewish affairs for many years, so I gladly present my defense before you. You can quickly discover that I arrived in Jerusalem no more than 12 days ago to worship at the temple. My accusers never found me arguing with anyone in the temple, not stirring up a riot in the synagogue or the streets of the city. These men cannot prove the things they accuse me of doing. But I admit that I follow the way, which they call a cult. I worship the God of our ancestors, and I firmly believe that the Jewish law and everything written in the prophets, I have the same hope in God that these men have, that he will raise both the righteous and the unrighteous. Because of this, I always try to maintain a clear conscience before God and all people. Several years, several, after several years away, I returned to Jerusalem with money to aid my people and offer sacrifices to God. My accusers saw me in the temple as I was completing a purification ceremony. There was no crowd around me and no rioting, but the Jews from the province of Asia were there, and they ought to be here to bring charges if they have anything against me. Ask these men here what crime the Jewish high council found me guilty of, except for the one time I shouted out, I am on trial before you today because I believe in the resurrection of the dead. At that point, Felix, who was quite familiar with the way, adjourned the hearing and said, wait until Lysias, the garrison commander, arrives. Then I will decide the case. He ordered an officer to keep Paul in custody, but to, take, but to give him some freedom and allow his friends to visit him and take care of his needs. A few days later, Felix came back with his wife, Drusilla, who, is, who was Jewish. Sending for Paul, they listened as he told them about faith in Christ Jesus. As he reasoned with them about righteousness and self-control and the coming day of judgment, Felix became frightened. Go away for now, he said. When it's more convenient, I'll call for you again. Which is an interesting response to being told the truth, right? He wasn't saying, Paul, I think you're wrong. He was saying, you know what? I just can't handle this. So this is not a convenient time for me to think thoughts like this. Can we do this later? Uh, the other thing that's striking about this is here's Paul on trial for his life. He could be like sort of humbly begging before Felix, like, please give me another chance or but no, what is he talking about to the judge? Self-control, the day of judgment, righteousness. Like he's not pulling punches. He's not brown-nosing. He's actually telling truth right there to power um, pretty boldly. Verse 26, he also hoped that, hoped that Paul would bribe him, for he sent for him quite often and talked with him. After two years went by in this way, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus, because Felix wanted to gain favor with the Jewish people, he left Paul in prison. Now, three days after Festus arrived in Caesarea to take over his new responsibilities, he left for Jerusalem, where the leading priests and other Jewish leaders met with him and made their accusations against Paul. I just want you to think about this for a moment. You've got the leaders of the whole Jewish region. Like, there could be a lot of things to talk about. A new person's just appointed as the key leader. This is two years after all the other stuff we just read. But what do they feel just like they've got to talk to this new leader about on day one when they meet him? There's a guy in prison named Paul. We've got to talk to you about him. Like they could have talked about know, economic growth or they could have talked about you know, welcome to our city or something. Or No, no, no we've, got, we've got business. 
we've got to deal with Paul. It just shows you how fixated, how kind of deranged everybody was. Like they were so focused on getting rid of Paul, which was really about getting rid of the story of Jesus and the whole gospel, that there was nothing else on their minds. And so the most important thing they could think of to talk to their new leader about was Paul. Like, we've got to get you on this case, and we need to resolve this, and this guy needs to die. It says in verse 3, they asked Festus for a favor to transfer Paul to Jerusalem, planning to ambush and kill him on the way. They really haven't given up on that plan. But Festus replied that Paul was at Caesarea, and he himself would be returning there soon. So he said, those of you in authority can return with me. If Paul has done anything wrong, you can make your accusations. About eight or ten days later, Festus returned to Caesarea. On the following day, he took his seat in the court and ordered Paul brought in. When Paul arrived, the Jewish leaders from Jerusalem gathered around and made many serious accusations they couldn't prove. Paul denied the charges. I am not guilty of any crime against Jewish laws or the temple or the Roman government. Then Festus, wanting to please the Jews, asked him, are you willing to go to Jerusalem and stand trial before me there? But Paul replied, no, this is a Roman court. This is the official Roman court. I ought to be tried here. You know very well that I'm not guilty of harming the Jews. If I have done anything or if I've done something worthy of death, I don't refuse to die. But if I'm innocent, no one has the right to turn me over to these men to kill me. I appeal to Caesar. It'd be kind of like you or I saying, you know, we go through some circuit courts or whatever and we can't get justice and we say, look, I want to take this all the way to the Supreme Court uh, for this to be decided. So Paul now, if he appeals to Caesar, gets his ticket to Rome, which if you remember was the goal. That's what he wanted to share the gospel. So here comes this opportunity. Paul says, guess what? I'm appealing to Caesar and, and now he gets, he gets a free and guarded journey all the way to Rome. Uh, well, a few days later, uh, verse 12, Festus conferred with his advisors and replied, very well, you've appealed to Caesar, to Caesar you will go. A few days later, King Agrippa arrived with his sister, Bernice, to pay their respects to Festus. During their stay of several days, Festus discussed Paul's case with the king. There is a prisoner here, he told him, whose case was left for me by Felix. When I was in Jerusalem, the leading priests and Jewish elders pressed charges against him and asked me to condemn him. I pointed out to them that Roman law does not convict people without a trial. They must be given an opportunity to confront their accusers and defend themselves. When his accusers came here for the trial, I didn't delay. I called the case the very next day. I ordered Paul brought in, but the accusations made against him weren't the crimes I expected. Instead, it was something about their religion and a dead man named Jesus who Paul insists is alive. I was at a loss to know how to investigate these things. So I asked him whether he would be willing to stand trial on these charges in Jerusalem, but Paul appealed to have his case decided by the emperor. So I ordered that he be held in custody until I could arrange to send him to Caesar. Well, I'd like to hear this man myself, Agrippa said. And Festus replied, you will tomorrow. Or in our case, you will next Sunday at either 9.30 or 11 o'clock. Right here, right? So a couple lessons we want to learn from this text about confidence. Because I notice that as, as Paul is changing hands here, there's new leaders being introduced, there's all these threats, there's all this time in jail. In, in all of this, Paul doesn't, it doesn't seem like he ever breaks, right? He's always filled with faith and confidence and even willing to take the brief moments he does have to kind of come out of hiding or whatever and preach and just go ahead and even talk to key leaders about their faith. Uh, I think that's amazing. 
So I wanted to dig in a little bit and say, well, where is that confidence coming from? And I think there are three seeds of confidence buried in this paragraph in chapter 24. When Paul is explaining things to Felix, he says, I admit that I follow the way, which they call a cult. I worship the God of our ancestors. I firmly believe the Jewish law and everything written in the prophets. I have the same hope in God that these men have, and that he'll raise the unrighteous and the righteous. Because of this, I always try to maintain a clear conscience before God and all people. As Paul was saying that, he was explaining why he could stand there with such faith, with such boldness. Okay, here's the first seed we see. Following the way gives you confidence along your way. So if you think, if your life is up to you to manage, like you've got to work it out. You can't make a wrong step or you're, you're going to miss something. You have to have everything line up just right or somehow you're in trouble, like that would be a very anxious and fear-filled way to think, right? That just every, any moment you could completely mess up your life and there's no way, there's, there's, there's no path laid before, there's no real manual on what to even to do, you just have to get it right on your own. Or following the way, which was the first century speak for Christians, uh, when you follow Jesus's way, say, you know, I still have decisions to make, like micro decisions about what, you know, what I'll eat today and where I'll go and, and you know, what job I'll take or maybe even things to us that are big, like what school to go to or who I'll end up marrying or what job to, what, you know, what, what job to take. And all those things are important. They're decisions we make. But imagine this. There's, there's a bigger decision about your life that is already made when you follow Jesus because you already know you're, you're following him. So you're heading, no matter what little decisions you make, all point to him. And when you have that worked out in your heart, when you've said yes to God by faith, you get to move forward with confidence and say, Lord, I'll dedicate all my little decisions to you. I'll do the best I can with those. But above any of that, I'm following you. I'm following your way of life. I'll follow your pattern. Okay, so the more you follow Jesus, the more you have confidence that you can take curveballs in life. Something can change. Something can be not what you expected. That's okay because you're following Jesus first, not your own plan. Okay, here's the second seed. Hope after death gives you confidence to face life. So as Paul would look at his life and he would say, you know, I, I, I have hope. I, I know that there's a resurrection coming. That allows you to face death in a whole different light, doesn't it? Doesn't make death fun or something you look forward to, but it it does give you a different kind of faith as you face it because you say, I recognize death is not the end of my story. In fact, death is kind of the beginning of the fuller story. And so I can, I can walk forward in confidence in this life and make decisions in this life and even take risks for Christ in this life because I have hope in something that's beyond this life. That's really important. That's why Paul could stand here in these life and death situations and not flinch. He's completely convinced when God is done with my mission here on earth, when I'm no longer needed here, I get to graduate to heaven, there's no negative outcome there, right? So I get to walk forward joyfully no matter what happens. And then here's the third seed. A clear conscience gives you clear confidence. A clear conscience gives you clear confidence. So clear conscience means that when you think, does anyone have anything against me? Do I owe anybody anything? 
is there anyone out there that if I saw them, there would be some problem between us? A clear conscience means you can't think of anything. That whatever wrong has happened, you've worked that out. You've made peace. You've paid things back. You've apologized. And at this moment, you would look at your relationships and your history and you would say, I don't know of anyone that has anything against me. My conscience is clear. That's an amazing breath of fresh air. It's an amazing feeling when you can't think of any wrongs that aren't made right in your past. None of us have a perfect past, right? So it's not that the wrongs didn't happen. It's that to the extent that it depends on you, you've before God and then with the other people involved, you've made the wrongs as right as you can make them. You've apologized. You've asked for forgiveness. You've made restitution. Um, the more you do that, the, the stronger your testimony becomes and the more confidence with which you can share your faith because you, you so you could be like Paul and basically say, hey, sure, bring my accusers in. Like you, you already know they don't have anything. They, I've been completely honest. And so if that's true, that gives you amazing confidence to be able to share versus trying to hide something. So I don't know if this ever happened to you, but if you're speaking to someone that you're close enough to to where they've seen your worst and then somehow a spiritual discussion comes up have you ever like had this sort of check swing moment when wait a minute i would love to talk to them about jesus right now or like offer to pray with them but they just saw me get angry yesterday or they they knew i told i told a lie or i still owe them money and it, it really it hampers your witness right and it makes you unsure of being able to move forward when there's things that are riding your conscience. You can't boldly speak the way Paul did because your own lifestyle is actually a barrier. It reminded me of when I was a kid in the 1980s. Now, not everybody here was a kid in the 80s. Uh, some of you were adults in the 80s, I realize that. Um, and some of you think the 80s was a long time ago. It doesn't feel that way to me. I feel like that was just yesterday, right? But uh, there was an old commercial in the 80s that I remember seeing a few different versions of this commercial, and I still think it was one of those really powerful advertising images that I still occasionally think about. And you might as well. Here it is. Sure. Unsure. Sure. Unsure. Sure. Unsure. When dryness really counts, be sure to be dry. Sure Solid has the most effective wetness fighting ingredient you can buy. For dryness, no one can beat. So you're either sure or unsure. Sure. Unsure. Be sure to be dry. Okay, so sure. Yeah, maybe that's you. I think about that could actually explain how some of us respond in worship time. Raise your hands, unsure or like really sure, I'm good. Um, so you could try that, like, are you bold enough, right? Um, I think about how this, like, being sure means that I could boldly open my mouth for the gospel, and I'm sure that there's not something that comes back to me to go, wait, you're just another hypocrite. Like, I saw, I know who you really are. So you can have a past, but when Jesus transforms you, your past, like, there's a story about how you changed, you can be sure, but if you're currently living in a place where you don't have a clear conscience, it's really hard to speak up for the gospel. So Paul was sure, wasn't he? In fact, one of the commercials I remember from that series was the one where they would have all these different people who were sure, and then it ended with the Statue of Liberty. Sure, right? <laughs> they, uh, that was a great campaign. Um, 
So Jesus addressed these same themes in Luke 12. He was talking to the disciples, and he said, you've got to watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. It's kind of playing a religious game with your mouth in the right moment, but then like in other settings, you're a totally different person, and everybody knows it. So when you're, when you're a hypocrite, it, it's like yeast. It works its way into every part of your life to the point where you don't even realize how much it's affecting you. And Jesus said, know that every secret will be made known. Every whisper will be eventually shouted from the rooftops. Instead of fearing people, fear God who knows everything and who ultimately has power over all of you. And, and, and then he says, when you are pulled in front of a court, when you are called uh, on question of your faith, don't worry. The Holy Spirit is with you, and he will give you at that time the words you need to say. So recognize you can be sure, and you can be sure that God will be with you. And so you have everything you need to then speak up boldly and be confident uh, as you proclaim the truth, as you follow in the footsteps of Paul in our generation. And I hope that we're never called in front of a court for being a Christian. In many parts of the world of the world today, that is happening to our brothers and sisters in Christ. We're privileged enough here to live in a culture that isn't doing that. Thank the Lord for that. But recognize there will be moments in your life when one way or another, you will have to step forward and be bold for the gospel. And that's the moment when you want to remember who's with you, the resources you have. You want to remember the fact that he will even give you the words to say it's just your job to have a clear conscience and then a willing heart to speak. Okay, so a little challenge as we wrap things up today, to move from a place of fear and anxiety to a place of confidence in our witness. What do we need to do? We go back to those three seeds that Paul planted in his argument there, and let's make those very personal this morning. The first one is make your decision about the way that you're actually living, the Jesus way or your way. If you're planning to live your way, you ultimately won't get to see the Holy Spirit at work, and you won't be a testimony for the power of Jesus. If you say, no, Lord, I'll yield my way to your way, I'll follow you, not only does that like modify your lifestyle pretty dramatically, because now you're following Jesus and his morality instead of whatever you want, but it also starts to modify the sense of confidence you have that there could be multiple micro decisions that you make, but no matter what you do, you're still following Jesus. That decision's already made. That gives you great confidence to start walking forward, pick up your pace a little bit, stop worrying so much. He's with you. Uh, follow him, he'll guide you. Paul said, I'm not ashamed of this good news about Christ. It's the power of God at work. He was sure. And, and there was nothing stopping him from being a powerful testimony. The second seed is here clearing our conscience. We say, all right, if my honesty is what's going to verify my testimony, then Lord, help me to get honest with you and with everyone around me. So, so here's the goal. The goal is that you could go and share Jesus eye to eye with any person on earth right now and not be a hypocrite. That's the goal. And say, wait, I, I can share Jesus with a stranger, but the people who really know me, I don't think I could really talk to them. Well, that shows that your conscience is not yet clear. When you have a clear conscience, you can be like Paul and you can say, I'll face my accusers. It, it must be fake because in my heart, before God and before everyone I know, 
I have either been right or I have made things right. And so you say, Lord, would you help me to get honest enough so that my testimony can be strong? Psalm 32, I love the whole psalm talks about this, but this, this is a great little nugget. What joy for those whose record the Lord is cleared of guilt, whose lives are lived in complete honesty. So when you become a Christian, God clears your record. And, and all the sins that are in the past, those are wiped away by the power of Jesus. And then he empowers you to live a life of complete honesty from that day forward, where you don't have to hide anything. When you mess up, you're able to confess it and repent of it. And you can talk to people about it. Like, you're not going to make excuses or, because you, you're completely honest. You're now following Jesus' way instead of your way. It's so freeing. It's so joyful to finally get to that place. Okay, and then here's the third thing. Trust the Holy Spirit. He provides the power. You provide the witness. You provide the words. He provides the words. Or you provide the, the voice. He provides the words. It's exciting to imagine that God would use you as his mouthpiece. That God would use you to help other people. That he would use you to proclaim truth to someone or show someone love. Like the Holy Spirit is ready to do that in your life through you to make a difference. If you're willing to say, oh, Lord, I'll, I'll, I'll walk with you. All the way back in the first day of our study in Acts, we read this verse. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere you go. Paul did that. You and I get to do that. So here's the question then. Holy Spirit, where do you want me to confidently be a testimony? All right, let's get the, let's get the easy sort of Sunday school answer out of the way. Where should we be a good testimony? everywhere, right? We know that, but I want to make it a little more personal than that. I want you to think about the places you go, the people you know, the things you're doing, and just ask the Lord, Lord, where do you want me to be a testimony for you? So imagine yourself in your place of work. What would it mean for you to become a testimony for Jesus? Part of it would be lifestyle and part of it would be words. Right? So if you're going to be a good testimony for Jesus, it means you have to be a good worker, first of all, or else no one will care what words you say. So you say, okay, I'll, I'll work diligently, and then I'm willing to speak up. I'm willing to be a positive, confident witness. Or maybe you walk into school, same deal. Say, Lord, I, I want to walk into school, and I want to be a light. I want my life to be a light and my words to be a light. You start with your life, and you move right into the words. You say, Lord, I... I I recognize you can transform me, you can empower me, but I'm going to need you to stand with me. Wherever you are, say, Lord, I'm, I'm ready. I'm ready to confidently give testimony and to show people the, the joy and the truth that you came to bring. I, I want to be a mouthpiece of that. So let's pray. Let's ask for the Holy Spirit's help as we um, seek to emulate what we see in the Apostle Paul's life here. Lord, thank you so much that the Holy Spirit is with us, working in us and through us, empowering us, cleansing us, transforming us. Thank you for all of that. Help us to be bold in our witness. Lord, for those of us in the room right now who need to make a decision to walk your way instead of our own way, I just pray that the faith and the willingness to repent would be right there ready in their hearts. Um, and Lord, 
that they could take a step that would just radically rearrange who they are and where they're going. I pray for those of us in the room who sense that we need to clear our consciences to make past wrongs right, to work through the messiness of our past in order to have a confident testimony in the future. Lord, I I know and all of us know we can't control the actions or reactions of other people, but we can control our own. And to the extent that we need to clear things up, I pray that you'd give us the wisdom and the grace to do that. And Lord, for someone in here who just needs to trust the Holy Spirit, it's time to speak up. It's time to become a proactive witness. I pray that you would give them the strength and the clarity of when that moment comes, what they should say. We lean on that verse or that promise from you that you would give us at the time of need the thing that we should say if we're willing to be a witness for you. So Lord, I pray that as we go today that we would all be light and bring life to the places that we go. Thank you in Jesus' name. All right, I look forward to seeing you next week for more of Acts, and I'll look forward to seeing you in 20 minutes or half an hour or whatever over at my place. God bless you.